Would you please turn your Bibles this morning to the New Testament book of 1 Peter. We're going to start chapter 3 today. 1 Peter chapter 3. There's a Bible in your Nova Community Church app, so you can open up that on your device. And we're going to be in 1 Peter chapter 3. We'll start in verse 1 and we'll go to verse 7 today. When you think about the words in the Scriptures that the Scriptures use and the words that are used to describe what Jesus Christ did for us on the cross, there's a really interesting and compelling pattern that develops. And so I'm going to go over a, about three words, and I want you to think about this pattern that's developing in each of these three words, these, these three subjects. And then this will give us a basis for how we're going to apply our topic today. The first word is reconciliation. It's this idea that at one time we had a right relationship with God, and now we don't. And now the cross of Christ has reconciled us back to God. So there's a pattern there. And then this next word is redemption, where human beings have somehow been kidnapped. And on the cross, Jesus paid a ransom, and he returned us back home. And then the third word is salvation. In 1525, William Tyndale produced the first Greek New Testament. And the word salvation was actually translated health or a return to health. And it was this idea that, that Jesus Christ, through him, we're made healthy again. And because we were once spiritually sick, and now we're not. And today we're going to look into a, a challenging, really a challenging Bible passage. And it's, we're going to complete this pattern, or you'll see this pattern in this, in this Bible text today. Our scriptural text today, the subject of it flies in the face of almost everything, our world, our current culture, believes and tries to operate in regarding marriage and relationships. And so today, I'm fine with you getting offended. And I'm fine with you getting angry. But I, I want to ask you, please, please, don't turn your brain off until we're done unpacking this passage. I don't want you to just hear certain words in the scriptures or hear certain words coming out of my mouth and say, no, he didn't. I, I, I can't believe he said that. See, God's appeal to you as wives and God's appeal to you as husbands is not about your bitter and begrudging submission. It's about your joy. Today is all about your joy. That's what's at stake here. 1 Peter chapter 3, verses 1-7. through 7. Let me read this to you. Wives, in the same way, Submit yourselves to your husbands, so that if any of them do not believe the word, they may be won over without words by the behavior of their wives, when they see the purity and reverence of your lives. Your beauty should not come from outward adornment, such as elaborate hairstyles and the wearing of gold jewelry or fine clothes. Rather, it should be that of your inner self, the unfading beauty of a gentle and quiet spirit, which is of great worth in God's sight. 
For this is the way the holy women of the past who put their hope in God used to adorn themselves. They submitted themselves to their husbands, like Sarah, who obeyed Abraham and called him her Lord. You are her daughters if you do what is right and do not give way to fear. Husbands, in the same way, be considerate as you live with your wives and treat them with respect as the weaker partner and as heirs with you of the gracious gift of life so that nothing will hinder your prayers. This is God's word for us today. I want to begin with some observations today, just observations about this text, just some general ideas here. The first is context. I, I want us to take a look at the context of this. From the very beginning and throughout, throughout the text today, it's as if Peter is bringing us back to why he's writing this important part of the letter. In verse 1, he says, wives, in the same way, and I think we have to stop and think, what's he talking about in the same way? In verse 7, he says, husbands, in the same way. What is the same way here? See, in our Sojourner series on the book of 1 Peter, we've been in this for eight weeks now, in chapters 2 and 3, we're beginning chapter 3 today, Peter's writing to Christ followers about what it looks like to submit to the authorities in many different domains. And so Peter's writing here, and he says, here's what it looks like to submit to government authorities in the same way. And then he says, here's what it looks like to, to submit to co-workers and bosses in the same way. And then he writes a little bit further, and he says, here's what it looks like to submit to authorities in the church in the same way. So he's walking us through this idea, this subject of submission, not just in a marriage relationship, but throughout all the relational domains and authorities in all these different relational domains. And so in today's text, Peter's talking about marriage and the relationship between wives and husbands in the same way as the government authorities, in the same way as co-workers and, and bosses, in the same way as the church authorities. It's, it's about context. It's also an observation we can make is culture. Because at the time and place in the writing of this letter, there were different types of marriages, predominantly arranged marriages, not marriages, the type of marriage that we see so much here in Southern California in our world today in America. Arranged marriages predominantly where one spouse was a believer and the other one wasn't. We read that in the text here. The most common was an arranged marriage in that day where the wife was a follower of Jesus and the husband wasn't. And Peter's exhortation is this. As a believing spouse, be a representative of God. Treat your wife with respect. Treat your husband with respect. And win them over without words. Submit and serve your spouse, not necessarily because they deserve it, but because God says to do it. So it's about context, it's about culture, and then the third observation we can make is about creation. And this is the theme, this is where the pattern falls in that we talked about from the very beginning. In the inerrant word of God, when it comes to what Jesus did for us on the cross, he's returning, to, uh, he's returning us to how he created the universe to be. It's the pattern. And so now from the very beginning of time, the pattern develops when sin entered the world in the very beginning, it fractured everything. Not just 
our relationship with God, but our relationship with our spouse. So here's what I want to do today. I want to talk this morning about the relationship between husbands and wives and how in Jesus Christ we get back to Genesis chapter 2 where God says the man and the woman, they were naked and unashamed. In Genesis chapter 2, we read about this in verses 24 and 25. Now, don't just think about nakedness in regard to physical nakedness, although in marriage that's a wonderful thing, but rather think in terms of the man and woman having nothing, the man and the woman having nothing to hide. That's what we're dealing with here today. So how do we get a husband and a wife back to the place where they have nothing to hide from one another and that they don't operate in their relationship in any shame? That's God's plan. So let's take a look at God's plan. See, first, Jesus purchased all of this on the cross. And he's going to lead us up to the place where he's giving us instructions. That's what we're reading here in 1 Peter chapter 3 and other places in the Bible that we're to obey and line up with and how he designed things to work for our joy and for his glory in a marriage. Today's culture would say something very different. Today's culture would say there's no way that a woman should be subject to a man. There is no submission. There is only equality, an equal partnership. So the idea of submission is a wildly unpopular idea. But let me get to the bottom of it in this way. The thrust of this text today is not about submission. It's a secondary issue. It's an issue, but it's not the primary issue. It's a secondary issue. The primary issue in this text today Concerning the woman and the man, this is it. This is the primary issue. The command of God is to not put your hope in anything other than Jesus. That's the command of God. That's the primary issue here in this text. In marriage, you put your hope in God. There is a movie in the, in the 90s, and it's, it happens to be a movie that, I, that I've watched over and over again. In fact, when it's on TV, I'll, I'll watch it all the time. And I could tell you the lines in it, and you could probably tell me some of the lines in it if you know what, what movie I'm talking about. There's a scene in Jerry Maguire where Jerry Maguire played by Tom Cruise. Okay, good. You're, you're all with me. That's good. And then he has a love interest that becomes his wife, and that is Renee... Zell, I was getting her name wrong, Zellweger. Yeah, I had to write it down here. And they're in the elevator, and they're, they're going down in the elevator. They're not married or together yet even, and they're in the elevator, and they're going down. There's a really emotional moment that Jerry left his, um, he's a professional athlete's agent. He was in a big firm, and it was all about money and professional athletes and, and all that. They're going down in the elevator. He just left. He just quit. Renee goes with him. They're in the elevator. They're going down the elevator. The elevator stops. The door's open, and another couple comes in, and they just start making out in the elevator, and they're, they're, and they're just, you know, Tom and Renee are kind of uncomfortable. You know, there was this, they just left their firm and, and their jobs and everything, and this couple's making out. And then the couple that's making out, the guy steps back a little bit, if you remember the scene. And he does sign language to communicate to this woman. And Renee just kind of 
you know, like, oh, that's, that's really sweet. And then the elevator stops, the doors open, the couple runs out, the doors close and they go down. And Tom's like, uh, what did he say? And Renee says, my favorite aunt was hearing impaired. And what he said to her was, you, you didn't see the movie, did you? He says, he says you complete me. That's what he says, and, and, uh, and it was a touching moment in the movie. Okay, let's get to the end of the movie, and uh, <laughs> a lot of stuff happens. It's, it's, uh, anyways, uh, the end of the movie, and, and Tom Cruise, they started a new sp- uh, uh, professional athlete agent, agency. Um, him and Renee are now married, but they're estranged, and something really good happened in the, um, in the, in the, in the new startup. And Tom comes into this house in a really a cool little cottage house in the tree section of Manhattan Beach. That's where this house is at. And there's a women's talking group happening. And uh, Tom comes in, and uh, he interrupts this group, and he says, hello. You know, and then he starts with a speech. Take a look at this. <laughs> I got you, huh? You're, you, you, you love it. You, you love the movie. Um, I, that, that line, I mean, you complete me. He repeats that. He says, she says, shut up, shut up. You had me at hello. I mean, you know, the idea of you complete me is such a crock. The idea that men and women are on this search to find someone that completes them, they're looking for a unicorn out there. (laughs) It's a snipe hunt. You're not going to find it out there. You see, I got to tell you this. 
a husband is incapable of completing you. And a wife, she isn't even close to completing you. And that's a, that's a memorable, wonderful, aw shucks line to a really, I think, a good movie. But let's not let the culture in movies and music of the world dictate how we're to operate in our marriages. Let's look to the Word of God, should we? Yeah, let's, let's do that. Okay, in marriage, you've got to put your hope in God. And there's some instruction here for the wife. Within this text is, as the women of old have done historically, put your hope in God. That's where your hope belongs, not in someone who you're looking to find to complete you at all. For women, this is how you're defined, where your strength comes from and where your purpose comes from. You put your hope in God. And then there's this appeal in this text to make sure women don't put their hope in the externals. That's what the text says. Did you hear it in the text? He's not saying, don't style your hair. He's not saying, don't braid your hair. He's not saying, don't wear makeup or put on nice jewelry. He's not saying that. That's not happening in this text. And so don't let anyone tell you that. He is saying this. Don't put your hope in external beauty. And don't be defined by an external sensuality. There is not anything wrong intrinsically wrong with nice clothes looking nice or having a gym membership especially if you're going to use that gym membership it's there's nothing wrong with that at all but it would be foolish to say that styling your hair wearing makeup having jewelry looking good is wrong don't be defined by your external the externals though and don't put your hope in them it's an appeal to modesty, I think is what I'm reading here. It's an appeal to the, to the development of the mind and the soul of a woman. That's the appeal here. In Proverbs chapter 31, it's a great description of what Peter's writing here, of a woman. It says she is clothed with strength and dignity, and she can laugh at the days to come. I, I don't know why I love that. I love that. She can laugh at the days to come. She speaks with wisdom and faithful instruction is on her tongue. She watches over the affairs of her household and does not eat the bread of idleness. Her children arise and call her blessed and her husband also, and he praises her. Many women do noble things, but you surpass them all. Charm is deceptive and beauty is fleeting, but a woman who fears the Lord is to be praised. So the scriptures tell us so explicitly, I think, don't find your hope, don't find your purpose, don't find your meaning in external beauty. Cultivate your soul, cultivate your mind. I think that's the, our next point here is cultivate your inner life. Don't put your hope in externals and cultivate your inner life. The woman here speaks with wisdom that we read about, and she's intelligence. And intelligence isn't, doesn't just happen. This is a woman who's spending time cultivating her soul and her mind and her husband and children sing her praises. And they don't talk about external beauty in Proverbs 31, do they? Why? Because beauty is vain and charm is deceitful. 
The other thing I want you to notice is about how self-assured this woman is because of the cultivation of her soul. When she opens up her mouth, she speaks not only in wisdom but in kindness. She feels no need with her tongue to tear down other women whom she views as a threat to her. All the cattiness just disappears because she doesn't need to prove that she's better than anyone else. She's not threatened by other people's talents or beauties because she's cultivated her soul and not just her external beauty. So the scriptures say here very clearly, put your hope in the Lord, not in external beauty. From there he goes, okay, since you put your hope in God instead of external things and not in men, now just now be subject to the man that you have. And let's not just leave this idea of submission sort of blowing in the wind so some backwoods fundamentalists could make women second-class citizens. Let's talk about biblical submission here. What does submission look like? Well, let's search the scriptures on this. Our, our greatest example of submission is Jesus Christ. And one of the explicit passages of scripture about the submission and the humility of Jesus is Philippians chapter 2. It reads this, do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit. You want to know what submission is? It's do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit. Rather, in humility, value others above yourselves. Submission is not looking to your own interests, but each of you to the interests of others. In your relationships with one another, have the same mindset as Christ Jesus, who, being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be used to his own advantage. Rather, in submission, he made himself nothing by taking the very nature of his servant being made in human likeness. This is, a, this is so good here. We understand submission by looking at the example of Jesus Christ. This is the command of submission to both men and women here, to all people. Our hero and our example of submission is Jesus Christ. And I'm commanded to have this servant attitude with my children and with my coworkers, with my neighbors, with Janet, my wife. And it's a command that she is to take up in all her relationships as well. And, and we're to do nothing out of selfishness, out of vain conceit, in humility, valuing others above ourselves, not looking to our own interests, but to the interests of others as more important than my own. You see, I think it's important to note that biblical submission is not blind or absolute. That biblical submission is not blind or absolute. Two Sundays ago, we, we said that if you're asked to do something illegal or immoral, that you say no. If you're asked to do something illegal or immoral, you say no. And, and you look for a creative alternative, if you can find a creative alternative, you, you look for an escape. But if you can't find a creative alternative to, 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 to solve this issue or you can't escape because you said no, because it's immoral or illegal, guess what you do? You accept the consequences. But we are not called to accept abuse. We're not called to a blind obedience. Biblical submission does not mean you say, I love you, so hit me again. It doesn't mean that you take any kind of verbal abuse 
in a tirade that someone throws at you. No one has the right to hit you with profanities just because they're ticked off. Now that's one side of this biblical submission idea. Now let's swing the pendulum on the other side. Because I've talked to some people in counseling sessions, and they'll come up to me and they'll say, I'm in, a, I'm in an abusive relationship, is what they'll say. And with all the compassion and with all the care, I, 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 I pray for them and I listen to them, and then I ask, what are the details? What, what's going on here? What is the abuse that you're suffering from? And sometimes, sometimes I'll hear, he doesn't respect me. And sometimes I'll hear, he never looks in my eyes. And sometimes I'll hear after someone says, I'm in an abusive relationship, I'll hear, all he does is watch TV or all he does is he's on his computer when he's home. He forgot our anniversary. He's not nice to me. That's not an abusive relationship. You're in a bad relationship. That's not an abusive one. So for the wife, don't focus on external beauty and sensuality. Continue to develop your inner life, your soul, your mind, and your spirit through personal purity, reverence for God, and a quiet and gentle spirit, the scriptures tell us. And submit to the authorities that God has placed in your life. So Joseph talked way too long, and so we're done, and we can't get to the next part of our, of our sermon. <laughs> Let's do this. There's a word here for the husbands, too. Verse 7. Husbands, in the same way, be considerate as you live with your wives and treat them with respect as the weaker partner and as heirs with you of the gracious gift of life so that nothing will hinder your prayers. It's real clear here. Husbands are called to four things. The first is to understand your wife. Understand your wife. In an arranged marriage or a wife that you choose, you're called to understand her. Literally, when we read the first line there in verse 7, it would read this way. Husbands, in the same way, live with your wife according to knowledge. According to knowledge. I appreciate the NIV and the, the translation of be considerate, but the original language tells us it means according to knowledge. Become a student of your wife is the best way we can make this applicable to us today. Be a, become a student of your wife. And as you study her, you, husband, adapt to her strengths and to her weaknesses. In fact, as I study my wife, Janet, I, I need to adapt to her weaknesses. She doesn't adapt to me. I must be a student of her and adapt to her uniquenesses in her life. Dr. Gary Chapman, a Christian psychologist, has written a book many years ago that it's, it's still, last week I looked and he was on the New York Times bestseller list and he wrote that book what, it must have been 12 years ago, 15 years ago, called The Five Love Languages. And it still appears on the New York Times bestseller list. Why? Because it really helps us to understand how we love and how we like to be loved. There's five love languages, Gary Chapman simply puts. It, it's, 
acts of service, it's physical touch, it's words of affirmation, it's gift giving, and it's quality time. Did I get it right? I got them all five. I got all five. And so, do you know your wife's love language? Do you know how your wife loves to be loved? Do you know that? I should make you turn to your wife right now and tell her what her love... I'm not going to do that. But, but do you know your wife's love language? Because that is understanding and being a student of your wife. And you adapt to her uniquenesses. Second is this, real quick. It's protect your wife. The, the phrase in our translation today in the Bible is weaker partner. It's better translated weaker vessel. Not weaker emotionally or intellectually, but physically weaker. Now, it, it doesn't take anybody who's, who's intelligent at all to think about this. Most men are physically stronger than women. Most men, right? And, and your calling as a husband is to protect your wife physically. Now, that, of course, means protect her from any harm or any violence or any, any uh, abuse and all of that sort of a thing. But I, I want you to know that there's another aspect to this. It's making your wife's burdens lighter. Making your wife's burdens lighter. And I'm, I'm convicted with this all the time. I'm enjoying watching my Dodgers play, especially as we come to the end of the season. They're in first place, by the way, by half a game right now. And, uh, and I enjoy that. And I'm sitting on the couch. I'm watching the Dodgers on TV, and my wife comes home in my mind, someone's screaming at me saying, get up! Get up to greet her. Get up to help her if she has anything in the car that needs to be brought inside. Get up! Get up! Get up! Next point. <laughs> Understand your wife. Respect, uh, protect your wife. Third is respect your wife. Respect your wife. Now, in verse 7, it says, As heirs with you, co-heirs of the gracious gift of life, you are to respect your wife as your co-equal. She's gifted spiritually. She has great leadership abilities. She has wonderful skill sets. And she has probably more emotional and intellectual intelligence than you do. And she is a co-equal with you for the gracious gift of life. You are both co-equal heirs as partners in the grace of God, in the kingdom of God. So respect your wife like this. Last one is serve your wife. Understand your wife, protect your wife, respect your wife, and serve your wife. It's the essence of what is biblical headship. The Bible does say, wives submit and husbands are the head. In many settings, you were lucky if you were a boy. And if you were a boy, you ruled the roost. You would get whatever you wanted if you were a boy. The problem is, that's how headship works in some cultures and in some areas in the world. But that's not how headship works in the kingdom of God. Let me tell you how headship works in the kingdom of God. Headship and submission does not describe a superior and inferior relationship. Remember, the Father is the head of the Son, Jesus Christ. Is Jesus 
inferior to the Father? No, not at all. And so we get that picture now. And I'm going to read you some scriptures, and I'll just let the scriptures speak to you. I'm I'm not going to make comments on them, really, but I think the Word of God will speak to your heart about headship and submission here. Ephesians chapter 5, verse 23. For the husband is the head of the wife, as Christ is the head of the church, his body, of which he is the Savior. And by the way, that's the church he died for. That's our example, husbands. 1 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 3. But I want you to realize that the head of every man is Christ, and the head of the woman is man, and the head of Christ is God. 1 Corinthians chapter 15. When he has done this, then the Son himself will be made subject to him who put everything under him, so that God may be all and in all. God's in all. It's not about superior and inferior. It's not about, it's not about an excuse for self-centered living. Matthew chapter 20, verse 28 says, Just as the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. That's our example in Ephesians chapter 5. Husbands, love your wives just as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. The, the, the chain of command in the church and in the home is the same. Leaders sacrifice their lives and leaders serve. If husbands and wives followed God's instructions in marriage, it would be so amazing. It would, it would just be the most amazing thing that we would see. Who would not want to submit to a head who's sacrificing his life and serving you? Who would not want to submit to that? And who would not want to serve someone who is putting your needs and your interests first? The ideal goal here is this. Christian marriages are a model to the culture and the world of Jesus Christ's love and relationship to us. Amen.